Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine, where this week we're chatting to Rebecca Thorne. Rebecca's new book, The Grief House, is out right now, and it comes after a switch of genre and a switch of name too. We talk about how her working day is tightly planned, also how a pseudonym changes her headspace and helps her switch off. And you can hear why she's trying to write without thinking of any genre at all. At the beginning of my writing career, I was definitely writing what I thought the market wanted to read. So I was trying really hard to be a, uh, a psychological thriller writer because I love reading those books and, it, and they're, they're, they're great to read. So I really wanted to write, <laughs> write one. And I did. I wrote two. And I'm, I'm really proud of them. They're, they're great. They're, they're good books. But it wasn't where I was comfortable writing. Um, and the other thing I realized is that the that deadline, that idea of writing a book a year, that doesn't come from the writer, that comes from a marketing department. That comes from a sales team who want to have a new book for the writer every single year. So that idea that every writer should be able to sit down, knock out a draft in six months and spend six months editing, that doesn't come from the writer. So as soon as you kind of sit back and you appreciate that, and I thought, well, I don't want to, one, I don't want to kind of do this thing that I find really difficult to do and it's driving me mad. I can't, I just can't write that quickly. Um, and I want to write what I want to write. So having that kind of stern word with myself um, and having friends also recognize that and, uh, and support me that just advice, just keep going was kind of what I needed to get over that hump. More with Rebecca Thorne in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along to the show. My name is Dan Simpson and this is Writer's Routine, where we take a look through an author's working day. We see what they do, how they do it, how they plan their life and day to give them the best chance of getting words down on the page. And this week's episode of Writer's Routine is brought to you by the new true crime podcast, Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? And it does something that many true crime podcasts attempt, but very few manage. It puts you right at the heart of the investigation. And it's perfect for you, because if you love your crime writing and storytelling, which I think you probably do, and if you love your podcasts, which I hope you do, well, it's right up your street. Who is the Cheese Wire Killer is all about a 1983 murder. It's now regarded as one of Scotland's most gruesome unsolved murders. And across five episodes told through a mixture of documentary and drama, this series goes into the very centre of a live investigation. As in, it's going on right now, and you can be part of it, with interviews from the senior investigating officer, forensic scientists, psychologists, as well as family members and friends of the victim. And you are there, learning all this at pretty much the same time as the police. It's a classic who's done it case that has baffled everyone for over 40 years. And with the killer still on the run in 2023, just a few months ago, the police announced the biggest step forward in this case. It's such a brilliant twist on true crime podcasts. It puts you 
front and centre so you can try and uncover who is the cheese wire killer find the series now you can listen to the whole lot wherever you get your shows search for who is the cheese wire killer and try and solve one of the most famous murders ever this week we are chatting to Rebecca Thorne she published two books under the name Rebecca Tinnerly and is now back as Rebecca Thorne with a new novel it's called The Grief House Uh, here's a quick look at the blurb a week long grief retreat on a beautiful country estate with no phones and no Wi-Fi is an ex-tarot reader blues usual getaway but ever since her mother's death she has been carrying a secret could this finally help her let it go only a few guests make it to the estate through the weather The storm worsens until they're stranded in the house, cut off from the outside world, and one of the guests disappears in the night. And Blue wonders who around her is telling the truth about why they're there and whose grief might be hiding a deeper secret. We chat about why Rebecca likes to be as cosy as possible for the first draft. Also, how mentoring and teaching writers for the Faber Academy changes the way she thinks about her own stuff. You might remember we spoke to uh, Professor Emma Smith, who teaches Shakespeare studies in Oxford, uh, how being around a subject every day changes how you view it and it grows within you. I wonder how true that is of of actually writing when you are a writing too. You can hear about switching genre and the moment that she knew that she wanted to try something new. And we get into why she is very passionate about verb placement. Just a whole new world opened up to me then. Stick around for it. And we dive into it as we always do with what Rebecca Thorne sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. It very much depends on where I am. Um, in the writing process. At the moment, I'm in my living room. This is where I would write first drafts. Um, When I'm writing any first draft, I like to make sure I'm incredibly comfortable and as reclined far back as I can. So I kind of stretch out with my legs in front of me, loads of pillows behind me, um, cushions underneath my knees. And then I can um, kind of really lie back, relax into it and let my imagination go away with me. So I find that's the best way to write any first draft. Um, And then, uh, I mean, around me, I have all sorts of stuff. I'm quite lucky that I don't find distraction that much of an issue. So um, around me in my living room at the moment, I've got loads and loads of books. All my bookshelves are in my living room. I've got my kids' toys. Um, I've got uh, yoga equipment and the TV and various, you know, things that need to be tidied away, laundry that needs to be folded, all, all that sort of stuff. I, I'm, I'm quite lucky that I can. Um, I get almost like a tunnel vision when I write, so I can become incredibly focused very quickly and distractions around me don't tend to, uh, tend to bother me. When I start to um, edit my work, um, especially if I'm doing something like line edits, um, then I go into my, I, mean, I call it my office. It's actually our conservatory, but I've, I've transformed it into an office. <laughs> so there I have a quite a small black desk. Um, and again, a, a pretty comfortable office chair. I like to look out into the room um, because it's a conservatory. It's got lots and lots of windows. So I've got lots of light. I can see into the garden. I can see into, um, I've got the, I've got the, sort of the Mendip Hills rising, um, in the distance on one side um, and then kind of houses and um, stone walls and things coming through to the other. Uh, I've got a treadmill in the corner um, and a sofa and various things to do with my cat. So when I'm in, my, in the conservatory, I also have the, the company of my cat. That's where our um, cat flap is. So she often comes in to pretend to help, uh, which, which, yeah, <laughs> normally involves meowing very loudly at me and looking for attention. Yeah, I've got a cat as well, and, and she's very good at pretending to help while just getting in the way. Um, well, so many questions. Firstly, not really important or relevant to your writing, but the Mendip Hills, I, I, like, I know the geography of the UK pretty well. I've only been made aware of the Mendip Hills, I would say, in the last year. It's just, yeah, like, I, I, I know Bristol and I know Somerset, but the idea that there's this mysterious place called the Mendip Hills. It sounds very King Arthurian, really. Like, like, uh, I mean, tell me it's as idyllic and dreamy as, as it always sounds. Oh, yeah, it is. Absolutely. It's, and it is a really remarkable place because um, the Mendip Hills kind of hem in the Somerset levels. So if you're standing on top of the Mendips, 
in front of you is just this incredible expanse of flat, flat, flat countryside. Um, and if you're standing in the middle of the levels, you've got this uh, like this, this saucepan-like edge of, of hills around you. Um, and they're really beautiful, really green. Uh, very, They look very gentle, but they're <laughs> actually pretty steep once you start um, climbing them. But they're definitely hills, not mountains. So they're, they're quite low and, and they, they just roll through the distance. And, and yet it is very kind of um, Arthurian. And rather grandly and philosophically, I live in southwest London, so I always feel very busy. Does does living in a in quite a tranquil, peaceful feeling place give you that same uh, state of mind? Do you feel quite leveled and quite chilled and maybe rolling at times? I don't know if I ever feel entirely chilled <laughs> and level. I'd, I'd be amazed if any writers feel completely level-headed all the time. Uh, the, the peace helps, having the, the quiet... Um, really, really helps. Uh, I mean, as I said, at the moment I'm sitting in my living room, I can't, there are no cars, there's no sounds of anything apart from the occasional bird song. Um, and I can kind of step outside. For, I, I walk a lot. I think most writers tend to walk a lot. It's, it's a great way to get your imagination going um, and to, you know, wheedle out plot knots and things. So, so I walk a lot and I just need to kind of go out of my front door walk down a few streets and suddenly I'm in, in the countryside and it, it really helps. It, um, it gives a clarity of, of mind, which I think is very useful. You mentioned writing the first draft being as cosy <laughs> and luxurious as possible. That seems like something that you have learned along the way in, in your writing career. Uh, when did it dawn on you that the best chance you would have for your first draft is to be as calm and l- lazy as possible? Um, I think I think the, the word lazy is probably the best one. It probably came back from my student years. So it wasn't a, a conscious thing I did when writing books. It came from being an incredibly lazy student who liked to go out very late at night and do lots of partying and then would suddenly realise that they had essays to do and hand it on time. So I used to write all my um, essays at university in bed. Um, I used to kind of wake up in my grotty student digs with books all, I did English literature at university, so books all over the floor, and I would just kind of like grab my laptop, write, you know, uh, an essay in bed and then hope for the best. Um, so it, it comes from there really. And that, but it, that worked for me as well, that, that idea of being very comfortable and kind of just letting your your brain take over, uh, letting the body rest and let the brain take over always, always worked. So I just carried it on. Um, and then when I started writing my first book, this is going back 10 years ago, um, I had to do that. Uh, you know, I, I had no desk. I, I, I was a, um, a young mother. Um, I was writing whilst my son was sleeping. Uh, I didn't have a desk or a, an office or anything like that. I just had the sofa. So I just kind of say, lay on the sofa and, and do it then. And we used to have one of those like really big sofas where it was almost impossible to sit upright. You had to kind of lie back. Um, and so I started writing on there and then I just, it worked basically. It worked on that one and I've carried it on ever since. Uh, now you, your ch- child is not, is not so long that you can only write when he's sleeping. Um, how frantic that must have been and how time poor you were back then. Does that give you a greater appreciation for now? Uh, maybe the room uh, you have to write in now? Does it? I mean, it's, it's changed a lot. Um, I mean, I've got, I'm a, a single mother to two children now. So it's, uh, you take the time where you get it. Um, it helps that they're both at school. So I, uh, I try to get as much done during the school day as I can. Um, and it gives you an appreciation of time. Uh, I don't, as I said, I'm quite like I don't tend to get distracted. Um, and I also protect that writing time very, very fiercely. So there's like, there's no chance on earth that when I come home after dropping the kids off, I'm going to mess about doing laundry or hoovering or anything like that. I'm going to write and I'm not going to do anything else. Um, so yeah, it, it's that at any point in your writing career where time suddenly becomes precious uh it teaches you it's a very valuable lesson it teaches you to appreciate the time you've got and to make the most of it well you mentioned lessons there so when Mm. when the kids are are back 
And I'm very conscious, before I ask you this question, I'm yeah. very conscious that occasionally when I chat to um, mums more than dads, yeah. I, I, have, I have these chats about looking after the kids a lot yeah. more. And, I, yeah. and, I'm, and I'm, I'm very conscious of that. But very simply, it's because um, for whatever reason, like, uh, it becomes more of a, a point of the conversation, like like dads maybe because they're they're not as there, no criticism, but they they tend not to bring it up, right? But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so when when the kids are home from school, uh, what have you learned about maximizing those little snatches of writing points that you have when they're in, maybe when they're doing the homework, when you don't have to take care of them, when you don't have to do the dinner? Like, How have you learned to maximise those points? So what I've learned is I am hopeless at writing when they're at home. Um, I need to be able to turn that. I mean, when you're when you're in charge of like any human being, <laughs> you, you have that kind of alertness in your brain. I call it like my mother brain is on um, and I can't switch that off. And I need to, to write really well, especially again, first drafts. Editing, um, isn't isn't as bad, but if, if I'm doing a first draft, I need to have a total peace of mind and no no one trying to distract me. Um, and I just can't do it if I'm if I'm at home and the kids are at home. I want I just I, I want to make sure they're okay. I want to make sure that they're not about to come in and disturb me. And and it's it's too fraught. So I just don't write any first draft when the kids are at home. Um, I do it all when they're at school. And when they are at home, I've now got to a stage where they're old enough that they've got homework and things and music practice and, and sports clubs to do. So when um, when they're home with me and they've got those things to do and they don't need my attention, that's when I do admin. That's when I get like admin done, finances done, <laughs> things like that. Catch up on social media, um, anything that I can do to kind of help my career that doesn't involve needing to switch off from the real world. Well, that might be really helpful, I yeah, would say. Yeah, uh, because, because you've really compartmentalised that time. You've given yourself a hard out, right? It's when the kids get home at 3.30, whenever it is, it's like, right, we're done. I need to I need to get it done there. Just before we have a look at the day and what needs to happen in those six hours or so, when you've done your first draft and you go into your grand office, the conservatory, uh, how how much does your frame of mind change how, how different do you approach that are you kind of more serious now you're sat at a desk it's a different I mean, a compartmentalization is probably a good way to put it it's a different frame of mind um i find that when i'm creating that, that first draft stage my sentences are a lot looser the the language isn't as precise um the sentences aren't structured in, in the way that i would want them to be for the, the final book so when I sit down to do edits, then I've got a much more kind of professional head on. I'm looking at um, I'm looking at what I've written, and first of all, I'd look at what works and what doesn't work on a kind of story level, um, and, and a character level. And you'd want to, you know, so maybe cut bits out, add bits in, just just to make the the overall story work and the the characters make sense. And then when you go to a um, the the more kind of structural side of the sentences themselves. Then I want to make sure that the the verbs where I want them to be, the the wording is exactly, you know, is, is precise. I want to make sure that the words on the page mean exactly what I want them to mean. So that is a, is a very different frame of mind. It's less, you know, airy fairy. Imagine if this happened, and more. Right, what do I mean? Let's get it down. I wake up pretty early, about quarter past six ish. Um, my son wakes up. The only reason I wake up so early is because my son wakes up really really early <laughs> so i get up make sure he's all right my daughter lies in bed for, uh, for a bit longer so the the mornings are kind of based around the kids um get them up get them ready for school oh and they shower dress walk to school um and then my writing day probably starts the minute that i've dropped them at the school gate and i start to walk home and then i am thinking then about what I'm going to write, uh, where I am in the story, where I finished it the day before, and um, what I want to achieve that day. So I kind of run that over loosely in my head um, as I as I get home. Uh, the first thing I actually do is once I'm back at, at the house is uh, yoga, and that's that's not so much to do with writing. Um, I have a, a connective tissue disorder called EDS, which means that I need to take very very good care of my joints and the muscles around my joints, and if I just sat down for six hours <laughs> every day and just wrote, um, I would fall apart. 
uh, and we kind of have a joke with my kids where I, I do yoga to stop my legs falling off. Um, so I, I come home and I do that. But even whilst I'm doing that, uh, I mean, your, your writing brain never switches off. So even when I'm doing yoga, still I'm still kind of thinking about what I what I want to achieve, what I want to do. And then half past nine, sit down, start writing. Um, and then I will write for about three hours, uh, you know, getting up occasionally for tea, coffee, things like that. Um, and, and yeah, I'm pretty strict with myself. I'm, I'm, I find it very easy to be strict with myself. Uh, I find it a lot easier to sit down and write than I do to you know, force myself to do pretty much anything else. Um, so that, that comes very easily. I, I do that until about 12.30, uh, have a break for a bit of lunch. And then um, in the afternoon, I have a, another job. So I work for Faber Academy um, as a, a mentor and reader. So in the afternoons, then I, I work uh, to pay the, you know, the everyday bills. Um, and I do that until about quarter past three. And then I walk again, do the school run. That evening, well, even late afternoon walk um, is just as important as the morning walk in that it helps me turn my brain off. So uh, if I if I don't have a space from my creative life to my parenting life, I find it leaks through and I become very distracted. So I try to really mindfully walk in the afternoon to pick the kids up from school, leave everything I've written or read behind me, um, pay very close attention to where I am right now. So that when I pick the kids up, I can be present with them and they don't feel like their mum is there in body, but not in soul. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So three three hours of uh, busy, busy morning writing then. Is is there an aim what you'd like to get done? Is it, is it kind of a word count thing? Is it a point of the story? What do you go by? What do I go by? I... I mean, in the past, I've done things like give myself word count deadlines um, and I find they make me just stressed. Uh, so the time one works for me far better. I just make sure that whether I write, you know, 100 words or 2000 words during that three hours, I'm there and I'm writing. Um, and it might be something that needs to be rewritten 60 times. But as long as I'm there and as long as I've done it and shown up, I'm happy. Um, I'm a really slow writer. <laughs> it takes me, um, even new working girls a day, it'll take me a good 18 months to get um, kind of a solid first draft done. Um, and yeah, nothing nothing comes. I, I have a kind of another joke. I just don't do anything quickly in life. My whole body <laughs> is designed to do things very slowly and very gently. So, um, yeah, it takes, a, it takes me a long time. So, I try to... As I think, I've, as I've got older and I've learnt to appreciate that, and I, I'm just a little bit kind of myself now. I think you know I can sit down and think I'm going to get this first draft down in six months, and it's never going to happen. Um, and the same thing with if I sat down and still thought, well, I'm going to write 2,000 words today, and then I ended, ended up writing you know 500, I'd end up beating myself up. So instead, I just think I've done three hours. I've done three hours of of serious work, and I'm happy. Uh, is that because? Your writing is quite purposeful every day. You're trying to get the right words. You're not one of these authors that just gets out anything and then fix it later. I, I mean, in a way, I am someone who who will get out anything and fix it later. But I'm kind of a mixture of the two. Um, I will kind of write a paragraph and then and then go back. Um, I'm dyslexic as well, so I find the the writing side of it, I find quite easy. The correcting side of it I find very difficult, and it takes me a long time to sometimes if I have an idea something that I really, really want to write down on the page. It can take me a while to kind of formulate it. Sometimes it comes really quickly and there's no problem with it at all. But sometimes it's it's like kind of walking through molasses. Um, so it just takes a lot of patience and perseverance and, and get there in the end. But yeah, I've, I've definitely learned that for me, doing those um, relatively arbitrary deadlines just do me no favours. You, you spoke of how much you've learned uh, about giving yourself time and space and not being too hard on yourself. Uh, how much has that always been the case? Uh, like uh, knowing how those 18 months tend to go, do you know when you're likely to get very down 
about the whole thing and just want to tear it up and start again when you want to really beat yourself up because it is taking you quite a long time. Uh, How much have you learned about that cycle and what do you do to push yourself through? Um, I think I don't do anything to push myself through apart from just keep going. Uh, And that's that advice is something I've just got from friends, other writer friends, and you just keep going, just keep doing it. Um, but the the realization that it's going to take me as long as it takes me is, um, I think it really came about from when I, I when I stopped writing under Rebecca Tinley and, stopped, and switched to um, Rebecca Thorne. It, it's kind of tied into that story. So the beginning of my writing career, I was definitely writing what I thought the market wanted to read. So I was trying really hard to be a uh, a psychological thriller writer because I love reading those books and it and they're they're, they're great to read. So I really wanted to write <laughs> write one, and I did. I wrote two, and I'm I'm really proud of them. They're they're great. They're they're good books, but it wasn't where I was comfortable writing. Um, and the other thing I realised is that the that deadline, that idea of writing a book a year, that doesn't come from the writer. That comes from a marketing department. That comes from a sales team who want to have a new book for the writer every single year. So the idea that every writer should be able to sit down, knock out a draft in six months and spend six months editing, that doesn't come from the writer. So as soon as you kind of sit back and you appreciate that, and I thought, well, I don't want to, one, I don't want to (laughs) kind of do this thing that I find really difficult to do and it's driving me mad. I can't, I just can't write that quickly. Um, And I want to write what I want to write. So having that kind of stern word with myself um, and having friends also recognize that and uh, and support me that just advice, just keep going was kind of what I needed to get over that hump. It's all well and good as a writer to think that, to think if I don't want to publish a book a year, then I won't. But um Surely conversations with your agent and your publisher must have been quite tough to to a- allow you to, to do that so early on in writing under a new name. How happy are they to hear that uh, this new author that they've signed doesn't want to kind of crack out the books as frequently as they would like? I Well, it's never come up, actually. <laughs> um, it's never come up. Um, my agent is a really, really understanding agent. She believes in publishing the, the best book you can rather than um, churning out to, to deadlines. So she's always been really, really supportive. She understands how important it is for me to write what's kind of true to me and what I really want to write rather than um, writing quickly. Uh, so I've never had any pushback. Um, I don't know whether that's just because I'm incredible. I think it probably is that I'm just incredibly lucky. I've just happened to have found an agent and found a, a publisher and editor who are very sympathetic to that. Um, but I'm aware that it's not the case for a lot of publishers. Uh, and I've heard so many stories from especially debut authors who have spent maybe you know four or five years writing their first book and they're holding down a, a full-time job and they've got a family and they sign a book deal and it's a two-book deal and they're suddenly expected to write the second book you know, within the space of a year whilst still having a full-time job and a family life and having to publicize you know their first book it's a, it's it's really hard and it's um yeah it's it's not an easy thing i haven't turned my back on it at all and and i know that there are some writers who can very naturally write that quickly and there are some that can't. And I think what, <laughs> what I'm, I'm trying to say is here, I recognize that I can't do it. So I had to look at it from from, um, from my perspective and recognize that I can't do it. And by for- trying to force myself to do it, I was making myself miserable. Yeah, it's, it's all about the... Well, I mean, it's all about the money to a degree, isn't it? We heard, we heard recently that... Um, I think the average earning for an author could be something like £7,000 a, a year. And if the money's not there, well, there's no way that you can write a, a, a book, two books a year and expect to publicize them and expect to like earn enough for your family to live on. I, I think you need to be in a pretty lucky position to get that done. And listen, I even know authors who have had to pu- write three books a year. Yeah, I, I, mean, I just don't know how they do it. I've got a friend who uh, last year he wrote six books. I mean, he's a full-time writer, um, but he wrote six books, and I just, I just cannot understand how anyone could do that. It, the sheer like speed of it is, I find, um, 
incredible. I'm really jealous, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably what it is more than anything. I'm really, really jealous. Um, just mentioning the, the pseudonym and, and the, the name change there, tra- changing your name and writing under, well, someone that is a name that is not you, um, does that affect like how you view it like the responsibility that you take over it i mean can you do you, do you feel that your voice changes and you can get away with slightly different stuff i i, I don't know um i don't think my my writing voice changes what's what it definitely does is put me in a very um it changes my headspace i find that my writing work leaks less into my private life now i can um you know, I can slot myself into my writer persona. I can do the work when I need to. And then I can take that kind of writer hat off. And then, you know, I can be a present parent or a good friend or, you know, whatever. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's definitely helped for giving me just a very, very clear professional space in which to work. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Like almost it's a hat, you know, it's, it's a character that you're adopting for that six hours through the day. Um, just, just a, just a few more questions on the day. You mentioned your work uh, for Faber Academy. I've interviewed uh, other uh, authors who have both been through and now work for Faber and the Academy program there. How, mu- how much does uh, reading and helping other people write affect what you do? I spoke. To, I asked this. I spoke to a professor of Shakespeare studies the other day, which sounds very, which sounds very grand, but uh, she was. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I'd love to be a professor of Shakespeare studies. <laughs> it's nice, isn't it? Um, because everyone could have an opinion on it and it's 400 years old. So you can't really be yeah. wrong either. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, she was saying how teaching something 400 years old gives her new ideas and new views on it because you're constantly being influenced by other people's opinion. Is it, is it the same when you're reading and helping someone else write? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, it definitely is. Um, helping other people work out. Uh, more so, I think, the, more so the teaching and reading, probably they probably go hand in hand. So I, I do two things with Faber Academy. One is that I will read manuscripts and um, give feedback on how to make novels better. What's what's working? What's not working? Uh, what can be adjusted to make a um, the book better? And the second is mentoring. So I'll I'll work with um, writers as they're trying to hone normally their first novel. Um, and yeah, it, it does it does help my own work. But then I sometimes also fall into the trap of overthinking. So if, for instance, I have a, a student who's struggling to make two characters connect and I'll, I'll research it, I will um, kind of look at books. I know where the character dynamic works really, really well um, and try to use examples of those to help help the student. Um, I read a lot of style guides and um, you know writing manuals. And sometimes that can work really well because then it's fresh in my head when I get back to my own work. And other times I'll then go back to my work thinking, hang on a minute, how is the dynamic between my characters? Is that working well? And so I can sometimes also overthink. So I, <laughs> it, it, it does help more than it hinders, but sometimes it does also hinder and I've got to kind of pull myself back and, and have a breath. Um, but I also just really enjoy it. It's such a, such a privilege working with, with people on their books and having them kind of trust you um, and take on board your ideas. And it's, when, especially if I'm at a, a point in um, my writing where I'm feeling quite alone with it, so it makes the other thing of, of taking so long to write a first draft is that no one else has read it. So, you know, I can work for a year before anyone else has even read the book, told me if they think it's working or whether it's not working. So sometimes I can get trapped in my own head um, worrying about my own stuff. So to be able to come out of that space and help someone else with theirs and see that you are actually having a positive impact on someone else's creative process uh, can be enormously uplifting as well. And how much as a writer, are you constantly looking to learn? Are you reading what other people do and looking at, Oh, hang on, this is how they're doing it. Maybe that might be an idea for me. How much are you being open-minded with that side of things? Very. I think that, I mean, inspiration is all around us. So you know, if you keep an open mind, um, you're inspired. But I think the same thing goes to improving in anything. You, you need to kind of stay humble in the face of the art. You need to realize that you don't know everything. Um, however good you are, you can always learn more. There's always a different way of doing it. And 
so yes, by by having that kind of open mind and um, and researching and reading and talking to people as much as I can, yeah, there's all it all it, it definitely has an impact. It really helps me. Um, I think yeah, staying humble is probably the best way to put it. You it starts me getting a massive ego thinking I'm you know an absolute genius and aren't I enormously clever for having this book published it makes me realize I I've always got stuff to learn I can always be better and just speaking about again where you work you mentioned yeah it's full of stuff you've got a lot all around you but you're fine you get tunnel vision there's no distractions how much do you have around you that lets you know what it is you're there to do so plot points perhaps um post-it notes whiteboards maybe the odd inspirational quote rebecca you aren't you're into your yoga (laughs) yeah um so as far as inspirational quotes go i've got a um a painting that my daughter uh, made for me which just says write the damn book um she made that for me about two years ago so i've got that right up there where i can see it so if ever i do (laughs) <laughs> if ever I am tempted to go and do something else, I've got that staring me square in the face, write the damn book. Um, and then I have, uh, I think my, my brain works very differently to a lot of other authors I know. And I've um, I listened to previous episodes of your podcast. I, I'm always hearing about writers who have lots of notes and lots of storyboards and um, everything. And I, I just keep everything inside my head. I uh, I don't. I make very, very few notes. Um, I write hardly anything down on pen and paper. Um, I do have storyboards. So um, I'm writing my next book at the moment, and I'm on kind of the third, third or fourth draft of it. So after the second draft of book, I normally do a storyboard, so I know how the chapters work. So I have kind of like a visual guide. But that's normally, to be honest, that's normally the first point I really write anything down. I just. Um, I just kind of keep it all in my, all in my head. Uh, I've always described my brain as like a spider's web. So I have that in the, the very center. If you sort of picture a spider web and you've got that kind of circle in the middle, that's why I've kind of keep all of the, the vital information about character and where I want them to go. And then the rest is just like a, a web of, of information. And, and I just, I don't know what it is. I'm just, um, I can just kind of keep it in my brain. So I do, I do that. So I have very little uh, around... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Someone out there knows who did it. There's people out there just keep it quiet. Not telling us what they know. My expectation would be somebody out there knows something. That somebody would know about it other than just the killer. I firmly believe someone out there knows who did it. Somebody would know about it. Somebody knows who did it. Somebody out there knows something. 
Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts. Who is the Cheesewire Killer? New True Crime Podcast is sponsoring the show this week, and you can find the whole lot. Search wherever you get your podcasts. And, well, you can support the show as well by getting involved over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. We have done almost 300 episodes now, coming up very close to that big landmark. And if along the way you have learned anything that has just helped what you do, if it has helped the way that you write your stories and plan your day, well, you can say thanks to us, I guess, for that over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. And it doesn't take a lot, just a few dollars a month, whatever it is. Uh, it gets you access to everything we've got going on online there. You get merch, there is bonus content, there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show. And it helps me carry on bringing you these episodes with the best authors around as often as possible. If you'd like to support in any way at all, please do take a look at what you can do at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine let's get back into it then with rebecca thorne chatting about her new novel the grief house and why she wanted it to be genreless it to be completely independent she just wanted to tell a story you can hear about how much she knew about the book before she started writing it also why she's very passionate about verb placement and were in words and we get back into it talking all about the grief house and how she knew it had to be different to anything that she'd published before as with lots of books lots of authors i, I had an idea and it kind of went away the, the first idea was just someone arriving in a place to get over something um and in, in, when it when I first had the idea, it was actually going to be the the character's um, dad that had died, and they needed to just process it. And I thought, well, how difficult would it be to process if the person you thought was dead kept coming back? So that was the the initial that was the initial kind of kernel of the idea, um, and then it. It kind of developed from there. Um, and I, I made a promise to my dad a long time ago that I would never write any characters based on him. So as soon as the initial idea was, well, this character's dad has died, I had to change it <laughs> and make it um, the character's mom. So I didn't get back on that promise to my dad. Um, and I wanted to, so I, was, I was kind of moving away from writing psychological thrillers. And I didn't... And it was more of a, an experiment. I didn't want to pigeonhole myself into a genre. So I didn't think, right, I'm going to write a crime novel. I'm going to write a thriller. I'm going to write um, a supernatural novel or a ghost story. Uh, I just wanted to, I just wanted to write again. I ran, uh, and um, I wanted to, the voice was more important to me than the story itself, I think. Finding character was more important to me than the type of story itself. So first of all, I found the character, and I and it was uh, it was a character who was in a lot of pain. In blue, had lost her mother, and she wanted to feel whole again. Just quickly on the genre aspect of it, I mean that must have been so tricky because you've consciously written psychological thrillers, like you said. Th this is this is I, I knew that this is what sold, this is what I read, so this is what I wanted to write. There's a, a firm decision in your mind there. How much, How and also, it, it's very hard to approach an agent and, and a publisher with s something that is doesn't quite uh, have its genre flag on the mast. How, how, how did you push those thoughts to the back of your mind? <laughs> I was really naive. <laughs> I, I was really naive. I thought, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a book. Um, and the, the only thing I'm going to concentrate on is writing it really well. So I, I purposely, um, I think it was just because I found the whole thing of writing psychological, psychological fiction so difficult. Uh, and I felt it wasn't really my, my true voice. And I wanted to get that voice back. So I just, I just really naively thought, I'm going to write a book and I'm just going to make it really good. That's what I'm going to do. And then everything will be fine. <laughs> and it really was not fine. <laughs> uh, but with that, did you find yourself veering into a genre kind of unwittingly, just like you naturally wrote 
a type of story? Mm. Um, I think it, yeah, it didn't actually, it's dark. I think the darkness is what I naturally write very well. So whatever I write is always going to be elements of um, darkness, creepiness, uh, emotional struggle, emotional pain. They're all all going to be there. And they always have been, even in my psychological thriller stuff, they were there. Um, And this was more shaping that into a story that I felt had heart, um, had characters that, that were believable and that you could fall in love with. And had a just a good story. I think that's what I wanted to do more than anything was to just write a really good story. Um, so I did, and then yeah, very naively I thought it would be you know welcome to the open arms. Uh, and what, what I wasn't expecting is that my agent at the time, I've, I've since um, uh, have a new agent now, but my my first agent who is a, a a wonderful woman, and I, and I really really respect her, and she is um, she's done done wonders for for other writers. I sent her this book after having written it for about a year and a half, and she absolutely hated it. <laughs> she, she uh, for, for those exact reasons, it was, it didn't fit into a genre. It, it wasn't, it, you couldn't neatly package it into a box. Um, and she especially hated the fact that it mixed these elements of kind of gothic with um, luxury mystery. Uh, so she, she very politely suggested that I either write a new book or find another agent. Um, so then I was, I mean, that's, that's the worst thing that can happen to, <laughs> to a writer is someone to say, you know, this book you've spent a year, you know, a year and a bit on, um, I hate it so much, you know, I want you to write something else. And I had to really uh, dig deep then and kind of ask myself what I wanted out of my career, what I wanted to do. Um, and I really believed in the book. So I stuck with the book, parted ways with my agent, uh, fell apart completely. Um, it was it was just like the probably the, one of the darkest periods of my life, uh, losing my agent. Because I also had no publisher then either because I, <laughs> I had left Hodder to, you know, to pursue this idea of writing what I wanted to write. So no agent, no publisher. And a book... I had read and my mum had read and really liked because mums tend to really like the books their children have written. Um, and I just didn't know, didn't know what to do. And um, I'm blessed with some really, really good friends. Um, and they're the friends that the book is dedicated to. They just kind of rally around and you know, picked me up and said, you know, it's fine. You'll be fine. Keep at it. Keep going. Don't give up. Here's some very practical advice as to what you can do. Chin up, carry on. Uh, believe in your book. So I stuck with the book. Um, and then I re-edited it, it once more time. Sorry, re-edited it <laughs> one more time uh, because I really wanted to make sure that if I was going to go out on submission again to agents, have to go through that whole slush pile routine again. It had to be uh, had to be as good as I can get it. So I really paid um, incredible, incredibly close attention to everything from just word choice to verb placement to um, sentence length, just uh, just everything on a really quite obsessive level, um, sent it out. And then luckily, uh, people were interested. And I think I think one of the reasons that um, agents were interested in it is because it was different. It, it, it suddenly didn't fit into those neat, you know, pockets that people were used to. It, it, it challenges those uh, traditional genres and, and mel- it both melds them together and pulls them apart. Um, so it's capture people's imagination I think uh so I was yeah so I, I got an agent and then pretty quickly got um got a publisher and and we will talk more about the grief house but just just moving on from that and learning that you can kind of do it your own way and get an agent and get the book out there on on shelves how much what is it affecting what you're writing going forwards because now what happens is because uh, a bookshelf, b- uh, bookstores need a, a place to put your book, right? So it might naturally be kind of put into a genre simply for that purpose. How much will you let that title and tag of other people telling you what your book is affect how you go and write future novels? How much will you consider that genre going forward? Um, I... Um, not, 
I'm trying not to. I'm, I'm going back to what I think made the grief house work, which was writing what's true to me and doing it the best I can. Um, so, and, and I think as I said before, there will always be elements that are the same. There'll always be darkness. There'll always be, uh, there'll always be heart. There'll always be like, you know, there'll be threads of intrigue um, and there'll be good characters. And I think if I if I do those well, if I do those really, really well, and, and the voice pretty much stays, I've got quite a strong uh, writing voice, um, then it, it should work. And oh, I mean, I, I, I don't I don't know. It's a really good question. It's an interesting question. It's one that always makes you feel really uncomfortable because I feel like stamping my feet and saying, I don't want to write you know, grief house take two. Um, I want to write, you know, what I want to write and the world doesn't work like that. Mm. Um, but you might need another name. I might need another, <laughs> I might need another name. I could just, just do this forever. Just bring up new names for every book I write. Um, hopefully that won't happen. And I think that uh, maybe they should have a new section in bookshops for, you know, pretty dark fiction. I think that'd be a great, great section. I'd go there in a shot. I knew hardly anything about the story before I started writing. I knew about the character and I knew where they were in their, where, I knew the place they were in their life. Um, and it was once I started writing the ideas and started flowing. So once I put kind of blue in her car and she's driving to this, this grief house, then it started thinking, well, who would she meet there? Who would be running it? Uh, why is she going? Why was the death of her mother so difficult? And those questions would kind of uh, come up and answer themselves as I wrote. Um, and then I started thinking, it was, it was more, I mean, I do take moments of pause. So as I said before, I, I walk a lot. So I will write, but I will also walk a lot. And when I walk, I consider what I've already written, where I, why I might have written that, where I want to take it next. Um, and what would fit well. And normally it's, uh, I have a very, I mean, my partner calls it the hind brain. I have a very active hind brain. A lot of stuff kind of works itself out in my subconscious when I'm sleeping or when I'm walking. So I will um, kind of muddle these things through. And then once I start writing, it just kind of comes out. I know it's a really unhelpful way to explain it, um, but it, and it does feel a bit like alchemy at times, this this process, I don't even quite understand myself. Um, yeah, kind of just, just, just flows onto the page. Uh, I, I remember the clearest point of planning for this book was um, thinking about Bridget, who Blue's mother, and it's her death that uh, instigates Blue to, to come to the grief house and work through her various issues. And that came from a article I read probably about 20 years ago. So it was really, I think I even read it, you know, back in the olden days before the internet really kind of took off. It was probably in the newspaper. Um, and the the story about the woman in this newspaper was pretty much exactly what happened to Blue's mother. And this has plagued me and troubled me <laughs> my whole adult life. I found myself mulling it over and coming back to it, coming back to it. And I thought... Uh, when I was when I started writing this, I wonder if I could weave that in. So I tried to find the story again, and I thought um, it must be easy to find because surely this can't have happened to any more than you know maybe one or two people in the history <laughs> of the world. And when I tried to find it, I couldn't because there were so many stories. There was, it, it happened so many times that I couldn't pinpoint the one story I read, read twenty years ago as as being definitely that one that was just, it had happened to so many women. Um, and then as soon as I discovered that, I was kind of quite determined that that would play a part. And then once I had that idea and I thought, well, if, because um, I don't, I'm, I'm aware that I'm being a bit vague here. I don't want to give too much away <laughs> to anyone who hasn't read it um, because the, the Bridget's past uh, impacts Blue's entire life. Um, and that's what I really kind of wanted to to, to get at. Um, and I also, shortly after that, uh, it was in the the, the editing stages of um, of writing the Grief House. Uh, there's a psychologist called Gail Atlas who wrote a wonderful book called Emotional Inheritance. 
And that is about how traumas of our parents or our grandparents can leak into uh, the present generation's lives and, and affect them in ways that you'd be totally unaware of. And that whole idea, I think, is wild that something can happen that you're not even aware of yourself to your parents or your grandparents, and it will impact you every day. And that was definitely the case with Blue, that she had no idea that her mother had this whole secret life before she was born. Um, and she never spoke about it. Blue didn't know anything about it at all. And it wasn't until Bridget died and Blue then had access to you know, the paperwork and things surrounding Bridget's past that she could start to piece together what happened in Bridget's life and why that had impacted her own life so much. Um, and that was probably the, that was the most kind of planning I probably did. Um, and the rest was just long walks and mulling it over. <laughs> well, let, let's... Let's talk more about Blue then, because if, 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 if all you really knew when you started off was that Blue was going to this place, um, how, how did you find out more about her as a character before you started? Like what, to, for you to occupy this mind and, and, and write them, how did you learn more about who they actually were? I think, it, again, it just goes back to that, that my whole writing process, which is write a bit, walk a bit. Uh, okay. Write, write, write it down, and then just think about it, and then just uh, I do become quite obsessive when I'm writing. I the, the characters do um, inhabit every every space of my mind. Um, it's why it's so important that I, that I switch off thoroughly before <laughs> before going back into parenting. Um, I find myself if I'm even in the car, just on my own, I'll think, well, what would they say to me? What what would we talk about if if that character's next to me now what would we say how would they respond to this or that what would they think about the news how would they you know what sandwich would they get if we stopped for a sandwich um and so it's, it's a process of um of getting i mean it sounds so weird saying out loud it makes you sound like you're absolutely crazy it is a process of getting to know this person that you have invented yourself <laughs> i'm really aware that all the all the answers that blue would give me next to me in the car as we're driving along are answers that i have created um but the, it's it is necessary that kind of deep knowing of a character i think it is necessary and that i don't know any other way to do it um and i have someone did recommend me once you know, just get a notepad and just write down everything about your character. And I did that with one of my previous books. And then what I found is when I actually started writing, that all went out of the window and they were just kind of themselves. Um, so the the process of getting to know my characters is I get to know them as I write the book. I think that's probably the easiest way to to summarize it. I get to know each character as I write the book. And then with each redraft and each edit, I get to know them better and I can tweak what I've written to reflect them and their character. And you, you did mention uh, having to re-edit the story uh, before you sent it off again to agents and uh, not knowing what genre it was in. So kind of having to hit beat points of a story that you weren't really sure about. So I guess what what rules were you following your yourself? I, I'll use the example of, I think it's Stephen King who never uses... Um, adverbs everything is i think it's everything is said nothing is ever said softly or anything like that uh, so i just wondered if you had any similar rules that you follow as you write that you will die on the hill upon oh 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 yeah the ones <laughs> i'll die on the hill upon ing ing words i hate them uh, so <laughs> i like speaking walking um swimming i just think they're out there it sounds inelegant um Obviously, if, if words end in ing, like evening, that's fine. But I find it a very repetitive sound. I find it repetitive on the ear and repetitive on the eye. And I do slip into when I'm in that kind of creative zone of just pouring stuff out. They're everywhere. Um, and when I go to rewrite, I take them out wherever I can. Um, and I always get really annoyed when, <laughs> when my editor or agent or copy editor tries to like swap uh, you know, a walked for a walking. I know like, <laughs> you will never do that to my book. Um, uh, so that's one that's that I always take out. Almost, it's almost like a like a tick. Like I just can't bear it. Um, one that's really important to me is verb placement. So if I am trying to build 
pace. I try to keep the, the primary verb of sentence as far towards the beginning as I can. So, um, you know, she walked, blah, 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 rather than, you know, lots of description and she walked. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? That comes from... Um, I, I, I know where it comes from. That comes from a really, really great book called Writer's Tools uh, by Roy Peter Clark. He um, is a really, really great... I mean, he's a writer in his, his own right, but he, he has done loads of books on helping writers hone their craft um, on a really technical level. And I find his books enormously helpful because I think on some level, we all, we all know what a good sentence is. We all know what we like to read, what flows well, what builds pace or what builds atmosphere. But actually to have someone tell you, do you know why that is? It's because the verb is right at the beginning of the sentence. Or do you know why you're having that really big brooding sense of atmosphere? It's because the verb is at the very, very, very end. So you're kind of building towards it. Um, yeah, he's brilliant. I really recommend him to any uh, other writers who are looking for someone who really, really to technically explain why a sentence works. That's your that's your guy. And that's it for this week's episode with Rebecca Thorne. Thank you so much to Rebecca for coming on the show. That new book is The Grief House and is out right now. Next week, we will be back with a brand new author. In the meantime, I've got another podcast that you can listen to. Who is the Cheese Wire Killer is sponsoring us for a little while. Give them a search. Put yourself in the heart of a true crime, something real life that is happening right now. Just search wherever you get your shows. Also, in the meantime, you can support us. Patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Get to write writersroutine.com and use the contact page if you'd like to say hello and we are still clinging to the wreckage of x uh, we are at writers pod there and i will see you next week with more writing routines until then bye bye selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.